Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We pick things up in chapter 16, verse 5. The break, really, of chapter 15 uh, comes naturally at verse 4 in chapter 16. But we remember that as we're reading this in chapters 13 through 17, that we are uh, in the midst of what is known as Jesus's upper room discourse, his teaching to the disciples on the final night of his life prior to his crucifixion. And their hearts are troubled. He's spoken to them about a separation that is going to occur, a separation uh, that would be on the short term, the three days and three nights between his death upon the cross and his resurrection, but then the separation that would occur between uh, them and him and Jesus and us now going uh, on for 2,000 years as he is glorified in heaven and as we await his return. Their hearts were troubled at that news and everything that Jesus speaks here in these chapters is to instruct them and disciple them and encourage them in the face of the new terms by which the relationship with him are going, is going to uh, occur with this physical distance from him and intended to uh, be a comfort to their hearts. In verse five, Jesus says, but now I go away uh, to him who sent me, that is the Father, and speaking of his ascension, and none of you ask me, where are you going? They are so absorbed with a sense of loss. Uh, all they can think about is that Jesus is going to be leaving us and, uh, and, and ascending to the Father, and uh, they didn't even think to uh, ask uh, Jesus, well, uh, where are you going? What is this going to mean for you? And even though he's spoken to them of his death, burial, and resurrection repeatedly, uh, as he's preparing them for this hour, it seemed even so to take them by surprise. And so the relationship is, and I'm so glad that Jesus isn't, you know, uh, stumbled by one-sided relationships. And this, on this night, is very much one-sided. Their concern is entirely for themselves and no thought. Uh, really of what it is that he is about to uh, endure. But because I have said these things to you, uh, sorrow has filled your heart. So their hearts are troubled and their hearts are filled with sorrow at this upcoming separation. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if, he, if I depart, I will send him to you. And so Jesus takes, as he's discipling them for this coming separation, he moves his attention from chapter 15 and the first four verses of chapter 16 that have to do with how to handle persecution that will occur against us during uh, this period of separation, and now he uh, turns and shifts to the subject of uh, the ministry of, of the Holy Spirit. And he speaks to them, his answer to their troubled hearts, their sad hearts is the promise that as soon as he departs, he's going to send his Holy Spirit to them and send the Holy Spirit to them uh, as their helper. 
And the word helper is parakletos in the Greek. It means one who comes alongside uh, to help. And that is a beautiful, uh, beautiful description of the Holy Spirit. No matter how familiar we might be with the description, it's still very uh, amazing to think that God will come alongside us to help us. And so Jesus describes this transition from their dependence upon him as the helper in their lives uh, to the Holy Spirit as the helper. And he describes it as something that would be to their advantage. Uh, Again, it raises the same questions that were kind of raised as we looked at it a little bit in chapter 14, when we ask ourselves, how in the world can sending the Holy Spirit uh, represent any advantage over what they had experienced for three and a half years, and that is walking and talking and being right alongside Jesus physically uh, night and day during his uh, public ministry. And as Jesus mentioned earlier uh, in this upper room discourse, unlike Jesus in his incarnation, where he could only be one place at one time and with one disciple at one time and one part of the world at one time. And uh, and, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit would not only be with them, but he would indwell them. And that was an advantage that the Holy Spirit had over Jesus in his incarnation. Jesus was with them, but he could not and did not indwell them during those three and a half years. But the Holy Spirit uh, would come, he would come inside of each of them as Christians, each of us as Christians. And, and, uh, and then, because one of my favorite uh, titles for the Holy Spirit in the scriptures is that he is the Spirit of Christ. And so it is Christ himself coming into our lives and the person of the Holy Spirit What's the only thing that could be better than having Jesus at our side? That is to have Jesus inside of us, now living the Christian life through us in the person and in the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's what he was going to send the Holy Spirit um, uh, to do. One of the things that I, reasons that I like that title of concerning the Holy Spirit being the Spirit of Christ is it tells us that The Holy Spirit, when he is in operation, whether in our lives or operation around us, he will always look like Christ. He will always behave himself like Christ. They are one, obviously. And uh, and so anytime we see, I think about how many crazy things I was thinking about this week and um, how many things in just the short decades that I've walked with the Lord, how many crazy things have occurred in the body of Christ that are ascribed to the Holy Spirit that look nothing like Christ. Uh, You remember being drunk in the Spirit in the Toronto blessing, where Christians gathering together in a room and they're falling down drunk, pretending they're drunk in the aisles and ascribing it to the Holy Spirit. Could you ever see Jesus doing that? Could you ever see him calling his disciples to do that? No. And then, of course, being... Uh, uh, drunk in the spirit wasn't enough. And when you're going to play that game, you've got to keep upping the ante and making it more and more exciting. And so then there became the laughing in the spirit, the barking in the spirit. And it's good to know as Christians, if it doesn't look like Christ, 
if what is happening here is being ascribed to the Holy Spirit and it looks nothing like Christ, then you're not dealing with the Holy Spirit. One of the things, the trouble, one of the things that troubles me about this kind of misrepresentation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life and in the body of Christ is that it makes people afraid of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we deal with him with a, a caution uh, that isn't warranted. Like if I turn myself over to him, he's going to make me do something goofy because we so, see so much ascribed to him in that way and nothing could be further from the truth. I think the fact that the devil attacks the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of the witness of it and, and uh, causes the devil to do these, these uh, counterfeits uh, indicates the devil's uh, uh, deep concern uh, uh, over the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his desire to, if he can't discredit the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian, then do at least make us slightly afraid of him or surrendering our life to him. No, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be a helper in your life in the same way that I've been a helper to you for three and a half years, but from an even superior vantage point of living uh, inside uh, of you. Nevertheless, uh, rather verse eight, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so Jesus now begins to speak about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world, his ministry to the unsaved world. And so he shifts from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer to instruct them concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in the world. And what he's going to address here in three areas are three things that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. Uh, in the world and in an individual person's life. We share God's truth, uh, we pray for people, uh, we uh, live a, a, a life that is different from the world, we live a Christian life, we do all of these things, but only the Holy Spirit can do these things through a believer, but only he can do them in, in the life of a non-Christian and, and in uh, the world. And so we can only uh, accomplish these things as we uh, 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 cooperate with the, uh, the Holy Spirit. The word that is used here for convict in, in speaking about the Holy Spirit coming and that he will uh, convict the world, uh, it's an interesting one. It means to prove to someone that they are wrong in their understanding of some issue. In fact, the, the Greek word that is used is even a stronger word than that. It means to refute an adversary so completely, uh, prove their guilt so thoroughly that not only are they forced to admit their wrong, but to even have a sense of shame that they ever believed what they did believe. And so I don't know about you, but I'm on the edge of my seat and uh, asking myself, well, what in the world is the, is the Holy Spirit going to convict the world of uh, to that kind of a degree? 
And he, he tells us of sin in verses 8 and 9, of righteousness in verse 10, and of judgment in verse 11. So the Holy Spirit will convict the unsaved world of sin in verses 8 and 9. Now, notice that the whole, Jesus does not say that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sins, plural. He doesn't say that. But that Jesus, but that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, singular. And what is the single great sin of which that concerns the Holy Spirit so much? We're told in verse 9, Jesus said, because they do not believe in me. That is the greatest concern of the Holy Spirit uh, concerning any individual person in this world that none of us would be guilty of having failed to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins in the course of our lives and enter into uh, eternity in that unforgiven state. It's important to realize for us as Christians that technically speaking, uh, ultimately, no one ends up in hell one day because of their sins, plural. But rather because of this sin, singular. For the sin of having rejected uh, Jesus, who is the only one that can cleanse us of our sins. All other sins can be forgiven. But there is no forgiveness for the sin of rejecting the salvation that is found in Christ, the forgiveness of sins that is found in him. That is the only sin that cannot be forgiven. As the apostle Peter declared to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, nor is their salvation, speaking of Jesus, in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, of course, all sin is serious in, in God's eyes, but the most grievous sin anyone can commit against God and against ourselves is to turn our nose up at God's Savior, at His salvation that He's provided to us at great expense to Himself, and then reject that Savior and that salvation that's found in putting our trust in uh, in him. That is the worst sin of all. What we do with Jesus, that decision alone determines our eternal uh, destination. And those who do not believe uh, in the Son, uh, they go into a lost eternity, not because they are sinners supremely, but because they've refused God's remedy for their sin, and that is a faith in Christ. Now, what's fascinating to me about this teaching of Jesus here, and, and, uh, and we can even listen to it uh, here this evening and hear the, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit related to the world and think to ourselves, what in the world does that have to do with us? Click and turn it off. But Jesus here is not instructing the world on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. He instructs us on this issue because if we do not understand what it is that the Holy Spirit is aiming at in his ministry and in his desires for the lost, then we will never cooperate with him in that, that ministry. 
And so here we are as Christians. Why do we need to know this? We're not lost. We're not unsaved. We've honored God with our faith. Why do we need to uh, know all of this? And it's in order that we might be on the same page with the Holy Spirit in his effort to bring people to salvation. Again, because if we don't know what he is aiming at, then we don't know how to cooperate with him uh, in, in accomplishing that in an unsaved person. And we, all of us have people that are unsaved that we love and want saved. And the reason that, that is important is because in large part, God uses Christians in his work of conviction. He uses us to share the gospel with people. He uses us to call people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. He uses uh, us to warn people of the consequences of failing to do so. And so how can the Holy Spirit be active in a church or an individual Christian who has kind of determined that the best way to reach our lost friends or our, our lost loved ones is without talking to them uh, about sins and then about an, a faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of that, the, uh, those sins and then the grievous sin of, of rejecting God's offer of salvation. I think the second reason that he speaks to the, uh, this to us as uh, Christians is so that we will remember to keep the main thing the main thing in our contacts and in our interaction and sharing uh, with the world. And here's what I mean by that. It is very easy for us as Christians to focus on denouncing all manner of sins that people are practicing all around us and then leaving people with the impression that they're going to end up in hell based upon their practice of some particular sin, rather than based upon uh, their failure to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. So you take the sexually Im immoral person, whether it's homosexuality or heterosexual uh, sin, they're practicing that uh, sexual immorality. We rightly declare it to be uh, sin, but then we fail to further communicate that their sexual sin is not their biggest problem. Uh, and why are they practicing uh, sexual immorality because they're guilty of the greater sin of rejecting God's salvation and rejecting his son and their continued life uh, in sexual immorality merely reveals that. And it's the same thing about all manner of sin in denouncing uh, thievery or robbery or drunkenness or getting loaded and stoned or violence or being foul-mouthed or a liar or an oppressor or proud and so forth. And I would venture to guess that if we ask the average unsaved person in the world today what they understood the Bible to teach as the most serious sin of all to God, the sin that cannot be forgiven, uh, what sin would rise to the top in, in their minds? What sin is the sin that really lands a person in hell? And they would talk about sexual immorality. They would talk about drunkenness. They would talk about partying. Uh, they would talk about violence and a life of crime and stealing and so forth. And why do they do that? Why is that their understanding? Even from people who are so often been uh, shared with many, many times in their life. 
Perhaps to some degree, this understanding can be traced back to a failure on our part to stay on message toward the unsaved world and to be clear with them that the sin that ultimately lands a person in hell is a failure to believe in Christ. And even when we uh, are, f- uh, find it necessary to uh, denounce other sins uh, as being condemned by God in the Bible, we have to never stop there, but then be careful to mention that the greatest sin, the unforgivable sin, the sin that lands a person in hell is a failure to believe in Christ. So they are black and white clear on that Uh, issue. My sin reveals me to be a sinner in need of a savior, but that's not what lands me in judgment one day. It is a failure to receive that, that savior. And it's this message that the Holy Spirit wants people to understand. And it's the message that the Holy Spirit wants us to carry. And it's the message that the Holy Spirit will say amen to in people's hearts. And so he wants us to stay on message related to this. Yes, sins are a big deal, but the bigger deal is sin singular, the rejection of the Son. The Holy Spirit, he tells us in verse 10, will convict the world of righteousness. And you notice that Jesus declared that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of righteousness. But then he goes on and He explains what he means by that when he says, because I go to my father and you see me no more. When did that happen for the disciples? At his ascension, 40 days after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus ascended uh, to the father. The disciples saw him no more. All of it recorded in Acts chapter Uh, one and as the disciples are standing there as recorded in Acts chapter one they watch him ascend into heaven until he goes uh, out of their sight and then a couple of angels are now present and and then declares to them uh, that uh, this same Jesus who has ascended into heaven will likewise return in the same way in other words Now get back into Jerusalem and get going with what he's called you to do between the time of his ascension and and the time of his his return. So whatever the world uh, thought of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and whatever people think about Jesus even today, it never affects heaven's estimation of him. Heaven was eager to have him back. And heaven was excited to have him back. And Jesus is telling us that his ascension into heaven was intended to communicate something to mankind concerning righteousness. And what did his ascension communicate to mankind in terms of righteousness? It declared that, and was God's declaration to the world that the only righteousness that can be accepted in heaven is Jesus' righteousness, a perfect righteousness. And it's very important to notice that Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness supremely. Not supremely of unrighteousness, which we would think he does that, but that's not his primary thing. He never stops there. 
without moving then to convict the world also of, of righteousness. And I think that uh, one of the single great messages that the Holy Spirit wants the world to know is that a perfect righteousness is required in order to get into heaven. That we don't get into heaven by being better than uh, some people, being better than most people, uh, but a perfect righteousness is required in order uh, to do that. Well, there's a big problem here because no human being possesses a perfect righteousness. And once it's imperfect, you can't approve on it by any amount of works. Once righteousness is imperfect, it's spoiled in terms of our own qualification for getting into uh, heaven. And the Bible teaches that all have sinned and as a result come short of the glory uh, of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And as Paul wrote to the church at at Rome of the uh, Jewish legalists who were determined to earn their way into heaven uh, in Romans chapter 10, he said, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is that perfect righteousness is required to get into heaven, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's found in his son. So the translation of that is the only person who would even give a moment's thought to thinking that I could ever qualify myself to get into heaven on the basis of my own human effort or my own righteousness that I could ever good my way into heaven is a person who is ignorant of the fact that the only righteousness that can be accepted is a perfect righteousness. Once I recognize that, I abandon all efforts in making myself righteous in the eyes uh, of, of God. And when a person then looks and says, wow, I can never get there on the basis of my goodness. How in the world can I achieve or receive this perfect righteousness? Their search is on now and the Holy Spirit will be faithful to lead them to Christ. And when, as we've been looking on Sunday mornings, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, Um, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, the righteousness, the perfect rightness of Christ is put to our account uh, positionally, and by virtue of that, uh, God looks at me in terms of my suitability uh, for heaven as being suitable. He no longer sees my unrighteousness, only the perfect righteousness of, of Jesus covering me. But I will never be open to God's salvation until I give up all attempts to save myself through my own human efforts. And I will not give up on my own human efforts until I'm told that the righteousness that's required to get into heaven is perfection, and the bad news is you've already blown that. And so now you need to look to the God who can provide this to you some other way. And that other way is in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit has come to inform us that the righteousness that's required for entrances into heaven, in heaven is perfection so that we'll cease putting our human efforts in, our, uh, in, in, in trying to gain heaven and put our faith in Christ. And yet in the world around us, even in the United States of America with such a strong Christian heritage, 
Uh, you ask the, uh, the average person in terms of the prevailing idea about how in the world we make ourselves qualified for heaven, and it's the same old story. You work hard to live a good life. You live better than uh, most people, or you live, uh, uh, you do more good than you do wrong, or you do good deeds, and you can uh, good yourself into heaven, and then, of course, you're going to uh, make it into heaven. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not only concerning unrighteousness, but concerning righteousness. And that conviction to make the world know that this is the only righteousness that God can accept. Otherwise, you're left with a God that is uh, just a bigger slob than the rest of us, as the old song went. And, and, uh, and that message concerning the righteousness that is required is as needed today as, as ever uh, it has been in the past. The Holy Spirit, we're told in verse 11, will convict the world of judgment. And of judgment, Jesus said, because the ruler of this world is judged. And the ruler of this world refers to Satan. And Satan was judged and he was defeated uh, by Jesus on the cross. In that context of Jesus on the cross, uh, Paul wrote Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, uh, of him having disarmed principalities and powers, speaking of the devil in the demonic realm, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them uh, in it. And at the cross of Calvary, Satan amassed all of his formidable resources against Christ there as he was on the cross, and he lost. And what proof do we have that he lost? The proof is that every single time the gospel is preached, Jesus is preached, and somebody gets saved, Satan is exposed as defeated by that cross and by that Savior and by that, that salvation, that the power of the devil has been broken. And it is the expelling power of the greater force and the, the darkness has been expelled by the light. And what is true of light and darkness in nature is true spiritually as well. Darkness has to give way to light. And one day Satan's going to be judged for his rebellion against God, and his rebellion will be brought to a complete end, as Revelation 20 uh, describes it. And the Holy Spirit convicts people uh, in the world, the lost world, he convicts them that there is a judgment coming after this life. And, and that just as Satan's rebellion against God will be judged, so too God is going to judge every man or woman who follows him in his rebellion against God by living the same life of rebellion uh, that Satan has. And so the Holy Spirit warns the world there is a judgment coming after this life. And if Satan has no hope of escaping it, then neither do you. And if I reject Christ, then I will share in the devil's uh, judgment. So we think about those things in terms of us sharing with um, our loved ones, uh, praying for them and, and, and trying to reach them with the gospel for them to see their need uh, even to be saved, let alone understand God's uh, provision for 
uh, for their, their need. And he said, the way that we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit, what he is trying to get through to people, and then how we cooperate with that message by declaring it to them in the power of the Spirit to remind them that there is only one sin that can't be forgiven, that our eternities are determined by what we do with Christ, that a perfect righteousness is required to enter into heaven, and that there is a judgment coming after this life. And for those to be the part of the message that we realize that the Holy Spirit is emphasizing and trying to reach the world. Now, um, there's tremendous movement, as long as I've been a pastor, there is tremendous movement away from all of that <laughs> within Christendom and in the Western world, for sure. And now you have the idea that the best way to reach people is to never mention sin, uh, never mention a judgment, um, never even let people know that they need to be born again. And I've th thrown out everything that the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to the world. And it's a great mistake. We will only reach people as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this because only He can break through in a human heart. None of us can intellectualize anyone into, a war, into to salvation. None of us can em emotionalize somebody into salvation. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit. And, the Holy, and Jesus said, this is how we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And people look at it and they say, well, that's pretty tough medicine to let people know. Well, who let you know? So does the cycle stop with us? I mean, people stop telling the truth about these things as soon as I got saved and now I have the luxury of protecting myself from strained relationships by not mentioning these things to myself. I couldn't live with myself. And so the importance of doing these things in our, uh, in our own uh, lives. And then here in chapter 16, Jesus reverts back to now to speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. So the Lord, they could only handle hearing so much on that night. And, uh, but he said, you'll, you'll have further instruction down the road. Aren't you glad that the Lord didn't tell you uh, everything, <laughs> that he doesn't tell you everything about your life uh, ahead of time more than you could handle. He just tells us the, whatever we have the maturity to handle or what we need to know, and the rest of it he keeps to himself, and then he reveals those other things later. It's wonderful the way that he does that. <laughs> we would uh, be completely overwhelmed otherwise. He said, however, when he, the Holy Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. And the principal way in which he did that was of course in inspiring the writers of, 
of the New Testament gospels and, and epistles and revelation and and uh, so forth. So they couldn't remember everything and even with the three and a half years and all, and so the Holy Spirit would come and uh, uh, guide them uh, into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will uh, speak. And so that is, he, he will only speak the things that are given him, the Holy Spirit, to say by the Father and by the Son. So when we are engaged with the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are engaged with the entirety of the Godhead, of Holy Spirit, Father, Son, uh, Father and uh, Son, all concentrated in the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. He said, uh, and, and He will tell you of things to come. Again, speaking uh, uh, certainly and most obviously speaking of uh, portions of the Scripture like the Revelation, speaking about uh, prophecies that are to come. First uh, and Second Thessalonians speak a, a great deal to this. And First uh, and Second Timothy, other parts of the, the New Testament. But also um, in the exercise of spiritual gifts. A word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, prophecies uh, that God would give us in, um, in opening up our understanding or revealing uh, these things to us, things uh, to come. And he will glorify me for he will take uh, of what is mine and declare it to you. And that's very important to recognize concerning the Holy Spirit in verse 14 is he will glorify me. Uh, Jesus says elsewhere, he will testify of me. It doesn't say that he will glorify, uh, Jesus doesn't say he will glorify me and Calvary Chapel Modesto or some other denomination or non-denomination. And anytime a church becomes more concerned about glorifying itself Becoming bigger, becoming what? Getting a name for ourselves. Once in, the, in, in such a dangerous leaven, anything other than the worship team coming out here with the sole purpose of glorifying Christ, and then the teaching of God's word with the sole purpose of glorifying God, then the Holy Spirit cannot participate in, in that service with the fullness that He desires to do that. You've all experienced it in your Christian life. You've, we've all been in the service, probably here. And uh, I try to block them in my own mind, but I know that it occurs. But uh, here we are, something as beautiful as happening uh, by the Holy Spirit. People recognize it. Jesus is being glorified. And then uh, all of a sudden, the focus gets turned to something other than Him. It's like who took all of the spiritual oxygen out of the room in three seconds? Because now it's no longer about glorifying Christ. And it's important for us to understand related to our own individual ministries. And of course the Lord, He purifies our motives as we, uh, as we uh, serve the Lord. So often we can be filled with motives that are so self-serving uh, in the beginning because God is just trying to at the beginning, clean up our outward act. He's hardly begun to deal with our motives and our attitudes and purify that. And yet we start to serve before those things are, are cleaned up. 
And so we begin and our motives are not uh, always to, uh, to glorify him, but to bring attention to myself or to be thought well of by other people or to be seen by other people. And it will always hinder uh, the uh, glorifying work of the Holy Spirit upon our lives and upon our ministries. It's a, I, I guess I, I, I camp on it a little, little bit because it, it frightens me. And um, I won't say that we try hard around here uh, not to glorify a bunch of other things other than Christ because we don't try hard to do that. We're aware of it, but that's the motive that he's put within, within our hearts in, in serving him. Right down to every single area you would want to go into in, in the ministry here. But the danger of it becoming about something else and then that losing the fullness of the Holy Spirit come to glorify Christ because now we're no longer about Christ. Uh, that is a great danger and this is a a great encouragement, but it's a great warning as well. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it uh, to you. And so the Holy Spirit reveals the Son, and as the Holy Spirit reveals the Son, Jesus says, you're also getting a revelation of the Father. Again, the unity uh, of the Godhead. In a little while you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. And now he's speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, the three, and a, three days and nights between his uh, death upon the cross and his resurrection. Uh, from the dead, all of it required to uh, uh, accomplish this, I go to the Father, that is the ascension that would follow uh, 40 days later. And the, the disciples then, they were confused by uh, Jesus speaking on this, and they, some of the disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me, because I go to the Father. So clearly they don't understand. So Jesus is standing right there, and they're going to work it out on their own. Nobody's going to say, uh, I, uh, uh, we don't get that. Could you explain that to me? I think about how many times I've tried to work things out of myself or I get the, the brain trust of my friends, all three of them, and uh, we try and work this thing out. And do you understand this and this problem? What should we do here? And, and Jesus is right there to ask. And they said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's saying. And Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Uh, yes, so I must have nodded. There's no verbal acknowledgement given there. And Jesus continues, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. The world will rejoice at my death upon the cross. You will lament that death. But then on the third day when I am risen, 
then your sorrow is going to be turned uh, to joy. And then he gives the imagery of a woman in childbirth. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. The pain, the difficulty of delivering a child. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy, uh, for joy that a human being has been born uh, into the world. So you probably, he, he describes the environment uh, of what is the environment of probably the single greatest emotional swing that occurs in life the delivery of a child. And here she is, she's straining, she's in agony, she's pushing, she's going through all of that to bring that child uh, into the world and you know, whatever is involved in that. Um, I, I identify as a man, so I don't know anything uh, about that. You'll be relieved to know. And so you've got all of that going on and then when the child is born and the doctor then tells the, the, her uh, what sex it is, I'm old school on that, but you do whatever you want, and, and everything swings completely to the joy of this child as the child is then uh, uh, wrapped up in, in her arms. And so he likens this, this uh, what they were going to experience in his death, the anguish, the hopelessness, uh, what in the world is going on to uh, then the joy upon the news of, of his, um, his resurrection. And therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Uh, and in that day, you will ask me nothing most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So he starts to instruct on prayer uh, a, 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 later on after the ascension. Prayer is no longer going to be you coming to me directly and asking, but uh, it will be you asking the Father in my, in my uh, name. And until now you have asked nothing in my name, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly uh, about uh, the Father. And so uh, here Jesus is speaking about these the, the figurative kind of language and then later in the epistles and in the book of Acts and uh, he would use, uh, they would have plainer language for uh, concerning God the Father, no more kind of parables or figurative language about now. This is how this new relationship uh, with God, with me, Jesus says, in, in the person of the Holy Spirit is going to take place. But this is all you can know right now. And in that day you will ask in my name, and I, will, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father uh, for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and, and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Jesus says, um, once I'm ascended into heaven, you, uh, you don't pray to me. And then say, well, Jesus, I know. I'm going to pray to Jesus and then ask him to take the message to the Father. He said, no, you pray to the Father in my name. 
because the Father is as motivated to bless you and He loves you as much as, as I uh, love you. And, and Jesus speaks about uh, the Father's love for us in their v- verse 27 and, and, and says, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth um, from the Father. And we are a special objects of God's love because we have loved and believed in his Son. The surest way to find a place in a father's heart is to treat his children well. And the same thing is true of our Heavenly Father. In trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we have done the greatest thing that we can do uh, to bless uh, 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 the heart of the Father. In verse 28, I came forth from the Father and I have come into the world again I leave the world and go to the Father and his disciples said to him see now you're speaking plainly imagine saying that to any teacher now you're getting clear on these things let alone saying it to Jesus okay you're getting better as a preacher uh, Jesus here. Now, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we're sure that you know all things and have uh, no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you came forth from uh, God. There's an old saying that if you can't improve on silence, don't try. And, uh, but this is something they're learning and, and all of us spend our lifetime uh, learning. Uh, Jesus answered and said, do you now believe? Uh, He was a little doubtful. Uh, Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered uh, each to his own, speaking of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and and, uh, his crucifixion, and you'll leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome uh, the world. And so uh, here Jesus, uh, when he speaks about these things, I've spoken unto you, we ask ourselves, and he speaks of these things as being something that will produce peace in our life, that will produce good cheer in our life. And so what is he talking about when he says these things? Everything from chapter 13 to the final verse of chapter 16. They're terrified, they're troubled, they're sad. And Jesus' Jesus's solution to their trouble, to their sadness, during this 2,000 year period of separation and counting was to teach them what he taught them in these chapters. And so when we find ourselves in the course of this pilgrimage in the same 2,000 year period for our little part in it, and we find ourselves troubled by the world, troubled at uh, at the the separation or troubled by the, the place of the kingdom of God in the world or saddened by whatever, it's always good to turn then to these chapters and reorient. And, and receive the good cheer and to receive the peace that comes from them. And so in these chapters that he, Jesus spoke that they might find peace, what was the source of peace? 
chapter 13, following his example of service and servanthood, taking the lowest place. In chapter 13, loving one another. Chapter 14, being comforted by his promise to return to take us to himself. Chapter 15, knowing the secret to spiritual uh, uh, fruitfulness. And chapter 15 as well, knowing how to properly interpret the persecution uh, of the world against us as Christians in its rejection. In chapter 16, knowing how to cooperate with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. And then in chapter 16, the attitude uh, of the Father toward us when we pray uh, to Him. So in the world we will have tribulation, but Jesus said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And it's His way of saying that all, that in, in this whole thing, just a reminder that I win, that I win, that you are on the winning side in all of this and being a part of my kingdom. You ever trouble, does the condition of the world trouble you at all today? I mean, I look at it and I, I look at our own past two or three administrations and not all of them equally at all, but certain ones in particular. And I think to myself of the policies that are being made, the you can only destabilize so much at once before you risk destroying the stability of what you, the stability that you take for granted. And it's not just the United States. There's so much that's in play right now, morally, spiritually, geopolitically, all kinds of things. And, and so much is unraveling uh, in, in the world around us. And you look at it and say, if we don't get a revival here somewhere, there is no solution, humanly speaking, to the problems that we have and that we are creating by the day. And so there needs to be that reminder that we are a part of a different kingdom, that God has it under control. We have made ourselves citizens in his kingdom and he has overcome the world. Now some of you hardly ever need to be reminded of that. But my mind kind of goes on and on and I do like the news and that kind of stuff so I have to preach to myself once in a while as well. Now everything is right on course. And so often I have to have the Lord just stop me and, and tell me, what are you seeing that I didn't tell you would be true of the world in the last days? And then I just typically say, Stop ruining my pity party. <laughs> here you are speaking truth into my, my situation here. But I, I, need, I need to hear it. And so Jesus, he closes all of this out in this beautiful uh, 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 section here of instruction and, and tells us that there will always be a cause for good cheer because he has overcome 
uh, this world. And it is headed to his God-appointed end. And that is a very, very good thing for Christians. If you sit here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, you have never confessed your sin to God, asked for his forgiveness, put your faith in Jesus for that forgiveness and been born again, will be up in front immediately after the service and we would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God. If you need prayer for anything that is going on in your lives tonight, we would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we do have tribulation in this world. It's not the great tribulation, but it is tribulation enough. And we thank you, Lord, for your victory. We thank you for your priceless instruction to us about how it is in the troubledness of our hearts and the sadness of our hearts so often, how it is that we're to see things and view things and how it is that we're to live our lives in the midst of this 2,000 year and counting separation of us from your son. We thank you tonight from the bottom of our hearts for the person and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. To have Jesus himself come into our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit and then to work from the inside out. Lord, we have heard that voice. We have felt that influence. We have experienced that power. All of these things. And we thank you for making a way for us to be saved and then to have intimacy of relationship with you in this way. And not just 12 people around you, Jesus, for three and a half years, but that this could be the portion of the uncountable millions of Christians all around the world. Thank you for having thought of everything in terms of our need for this season of separation, Lord, in living for you. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.